this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. A loud pop startled her and she jumped. Handish had clapped a mosquito between his big hands. He wiped a spot of blood off onto his trousers. Those paws looked as if they could crush a human skull, let alone a windpipe. Quinn wasn't afraid. She kept a loaded derringer in her desk drawer and had no compunction about using it if need be. Still in all, she wouldn't mind seeing Garnick drift back to the office. Handish said, you need to put cheesecloth over those windows. I'll mention it to Mr. Garnick, she said. Would you like a fan? This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to Jean Matthews, author of Devil by the Tail, the first book in the Garnick and Pascal mystery series. In this richly described novel, it's 1867 and Chicago hasn't yet experienced the Great Fire. A stranger slaps a newspaper notice about an escaped murderer onto the detective's desk and pays to get his name cleared. When he's found dead a few days later, detectives Garnick and Pascal begin hurrying about town in horse-drawn carriages, trying to find the real killer. Hi, Jean. Thanks for joining me today. It's a real pleasure to be with you, Galit. So as someone who lives in the Pacific Northwest, why did you decide to set this series in 1860s Chicago, my city? Well, I became fascinated to begin with by all of the excitement that was happening post-war, post-Civil War in Chicago. It was the happening place, the railroads, the stockyards, a huge uh, influx of immigrants, from all over the world, from Europe, especially the Irish, the Italians. And um, there were a lot of radical Finians who caught my interest. I did not study in school the uh, story of the Irish Finian invasion of Canada. And that caught my interest. And there were so many radicals in Chicago. It's, it, I started researching and became captivated by your city. Did you come by for a cup of coffee or a piece of pizza? <laughs> yes, but you know, it, it just looks so dramatically different. Um, the Chicago of today is just almost impossible to, to compare to the actual pre-fire Chicago although there were exciting things happen, happening in 1866 
they jacked up the city. They had hydraulic jacks and they, they brought up five-story buildings uh, from the swamp. And it, it, was, it was a time of great um, engineering feats. It was the, the um, sewage system was was just being developed they built a two-mile tunnel as you of course know out under lake michigan and it was just it was a crazy time for development well seeing as how it's five years before the great fire how did you know where the hotels and the opera and other such places were located well, there there is quite a bit of information. Um, there are actual photographs, and um, and the Chicago Library and even the Library of Congress have all kinds of interesting photos. Plus, um, I will have to say the internet is just. Um, a treasure trove if you ask the right questions. All kinds of interesting um, information will pop up. I've heard of it. The action takes place, as you mentioned, in 1867, not long after the Civil War ended. Can you say more about how some of your characters, even up north in Chicago, are still very much affected by the aftermath of that war? One of my main characters has been incarcerated in Camp Douglas, which was a huge prisoner of war camp um, uh, south of Chicago. And it was, it was, um, it was terribly unsanitary. Of course, not at no time during the Civil War did people believe in the germ theory, and there were all kinds of people who died from surgeries where the surgeons didn't wash their hands, but there there was just a, a terrible time of uh, cholera, typhoid, um, even even smallpox during this, this time of incarceration at Camp Douglas. It was the Andersonville of the North, and everyone knows how terrible the camp was in Andersonville, Georgia. So um, my character emerges from this, and um, he, I'm writing a sequel now, and I am including the fact that he has a tattoo with the date of his release, which is Mm. the beginning of his new life, in Chicago, his wife and child have died. He has no reason to return south, and he falls in with this uh, this widow of a Union soldier named Quinn Sinclair, and they, they start their own detective agency. Mm-hmm. I was shocked really shocked to read about corruption by Chicago politicians back then. How did you dream up something so absolutely wacky and never before heard of about Chicago? This is like a line from Casablanca in it. And I'm shocked, shocked to find gambling going on. Um, it really is astounding. Um, by the time of the 1860 Republican convention in Chicago, 
its reputation for skullduggery and and political shenanigans was so entrenched that um, that Chicago became a verb. To be Chicagoed was to be either beaten by underhanded um, tactics in a in an election or possibly to be beaten to a pulp. It, it depended on which side of town you were on. But to be Chicagoed was not a good thing. We hardly ever use that term anymore. <laughs> Another thing that was hard to wrap my mind around was a journalist who embellished stories and made up lies in order to sell more newspapers. How'd you come up with that? Well, the Penny Press was... Um, just a, a fascinating story in and of itself in the 19th century. There were lurid stories about, um, about murders. Murders were the favorite of the Penny Press. It started in New York, and there was a murder of a, of a prostitute named Helen Jewett that sold thousands and thousands of newspapers. And um, the they, the press enjoyed reporting about the murders of innocent people, but when there was something really salacious and uh, some member of the Demimund, some unfortunate uh, nymph de pave was murdered, then it sold even more newspapers. So I had a good time with that. Hmm. As you said, Quinn Sinclair is a young Civil War widow, and her in-laws are trying to cheat her out of her inheritance. She has to make a living, and she knows that her choices are limited. Can you say more about her? Well, one of the things that makes the 19th century seem sort of benighted to us at now is the law of coverture. And married women lived under the law of coverture, which meant that in a marriage there was one person, and that one person was the man. The woman's rights were completely erased. They were subsumed by those of the man. And if the man happened to, to die intestate, uh, as Quinn's husband did, um, his in-laws, or his parents, her in-laws, became uh, the controllers of the estate. And it was really interesting because at the same time, um, Abraham Lincoln had died intestate. And poor Mary, who was kind of uppity, she, she had strong opinions, and she had alienated a lot of congressmen, and they refused to give her a pension. So she was wandering around Chicago um, in a state of virtual poverty for about a year, waiting on her um, husband's will to, to be fully executed. So it was a hard time for women and also a hard time for women to work um, outside the home. Yeah, what were their choices? Yeah, it was, it was rare. Um, there was uh, one famous woman in Chicago who um, was the 
she she was said to be the mistress of Alan Pinkerton. Um, that is rumor. Um, although he did have her buried beside him. I don't know whether between him and his wife or on the side of him and his wife. But um, she had been a spy for Pinkerton during the war. So she had a female bureau at the Pinkertons. Uh, and my character had a brief uh, training session with Kate Warren. So that was that was also a fun piece of history to research. Hmm. Let's talk about Garnick. What's his background and why is he willing to join forces with a female partner? Well, I think he was impressed by her her um, ability by her cleverness. She um, she solves her father's mur- murder. It's something of a backstory and ultimately may be the prequel that I write um, one of these days. But she has solved her father's murder and um, he has helped her at a time when she couldn't trust really anyone else in the world, this perfect stranger comes along and proves his not only his uh, trustworthiness, but his ability to help her uh, solve mysteries. And at a time when a woman didn't really have any credibility as a detective, he becomes her front man. Um, she needs a man to lend the agency credibility. So it becomes Garnick and Pascal, not Pascal and Garnick. Mm. Can you say more about the houses of ill repute in the novel, keeping in mind that it might be a delicate subject for some of our more gentle listeners? Well, it was a terrible time for... Um, for women uh, who were abandoned. Um, There were lots and lots of men flooding into the city to work at the stockyards, to to, um, uh, be lumber shovers uh, in the lumber yards. Um, It was was a time when uh, women were more vulnerable um, to being seduced, and there were really no strong laws to keep to keep men um, on hand to pay child support to support women, and so a lot of them, because of poverty, uh, for whatever reason, became prostitutes, and some of them became prostitutes because. They could make so much more money than working in the cigar factory or sewing uh, in the little um, millinery shops and whatever. So they became prostitutes because it was profitable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they didn't have choices. Gambling dens are another risque subject that I'd love for you to touch upon. Well, Gambling and prostitution were rampant. Um, 
not only were there these uh, skinning houses, uh, card houses, but um, there were there were horse races. There were any there there were so many young men making wages, earning money, that there had to be a huge industry to take that money away from them, and some very um, clever gamblers like um, uh, Cap Hyman, for one, uh, started started these card houses, and they um, had their favorite uh, dens of iniquity. Cap Hyman um, ultimately married one of the most famous madams in the city, um, Gentle Annie Stafford. And there were, um, there were, Chicago was just full of corruption. And the mayor of Chicago also, along with the city council, were involved in um, taking a cut from the gambling dens and the houses of prostitution because um, they control the police. And the police would back off and not uh, not enter these uh, rowdy areas uh, because uh, the mayor ordered them not to. Mm-hmm. I've never heard of anything like that. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> we hear about it all the time. <laughs> I loved your descriptions of Quinn's clothing and bonnets and what the women were wearing. How did you research what women were wearing in the 1860s? Well, Quinn did not dress the way that uh, Godey's ladies' book um, w- would have recommended it was it was the most popular magazine for women at the time and it did show all of these wonderful dresses many of which um were inspired by the um the empress and um queens and and um high level royalty of europe and and some by Mary Todd Lincoln's gowns. Uh, Mary had a, an, a modiste named Elizabeth Keckley, who was a freed slave, and she was a gifted seamstress and designer. And some of her gowns were featured in Godey's Ladies' Book. But um, just about this time, uh, crinolines and hoop skirts were disappearing and skirts were becoming narrower. It was just before the time of the bustle and just after the time of the hoop skirt. So fashions were changing. And there are, in fact, lots of, lots of books and magazines from the time that I looked at that gave a clue about what kinds of clothes Quinn might have worn. You mentioned areas of Chicago where the smell is overpowering and horrific. Can you expand on that, please? It's a story I never tire of hearing about. Well, especially on the Chicago River, there was an area called Bubbly Creek that literally bubbled 
the fermentation from all the storage, from the the um, discharges from the stockyards, the offal, and it was it was overpowering. I'm sure. Um, it's it's really hard to imagine. I I read descriptions, um, but a, a description of a smell is really very difficult to write. Um, but there are some vivid, of course, vivid refer, sort of refers to the visual. So I, I don't know. I, I am. I have smelled foul smells. In fact, I worked as a paralegal in Denver for a number of years, and one of our cases involved the Globeville Ophel plant. And so I, I was uh, in my particular little law firm circle was referred to as the queen of Ophel because I visited <laughs> this plant and it was, it was gross. I'm sure your listeners do not want to hear about the sites, but there were four kinds of animals that were dealt with the, the dead, down, diseased and disabled. And they all were, were, became um, grease and candle wax and soap and whatever. So uh, I, I could relate a little bit to 19th century Chicago just because of that experience. Ah, okay. I, I read that you love cooking and baking. And I wonder That's if quite you, a transition, uh, Galit. What smells? Just whatever the idea of smells is, is <laughs> from bad to good. Will you ever <laughs> consider including recipes in a novel? Like uh, maybe culinary mysteries are in your future? You know, I don't think so with Quinn. Quinn is, um, she is not um, um, a baker, I think. I, I think the, uh, the only food reference that I have in uh, Devil by the Tail is when Garnet fries some eggs. So mm. um, it may be a situation where the man does the cooking and baking. I'm not sure. Oh, oh, I like it. Okay. Um, so, Jean, what are you working on now? Can we look forward to a sequel in the near future? I'm working on a sequel, actually. Um, I'm, I'm trying to uh, do some research on, on um, grave robbing, which was also quite a thing in the 19th century. And um, it, they were called resurrectionists. And they would steal cadavers to take to medical schools and um, sell to doctors sort of secretly because doctors didn't want to get a bad reputation uh, for grave robbing. And, uh, but they needed them to study anatomy. So that's, that's going to be the kickoff for the sequel. Hmm, I'm intrigued. Jane, it's been lovely talking to you. Thank you so much for this interview. And I look forward to reading your next book. I loved Devil by the Tail. Well, thank you so much, Khalid. This was delightful. I enjoyed it. And thank you for, for being the, the podcast mistress. <laughs> and thank you for joining me. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery series, 
and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I've been talking with author Jean Matthews about Devil by the Tail, the first in her new Garnick and Pascal mystery series. Hope you're all able to lose yourself in a good book today and tomorrow too. Happy reading.